Hey guys, this is your host, Doug Stewart. And if you have been with us since episode one, I want to thank you for hanging in there with us and being a loyal supporter and a loyal listener. We have so many episodes. I mean, we're in the mid to high 300s right now, depending on which episode you're listening to this little pre-roll for. What we're going to do is we're going to actually re-release a few of the episodes that I would consider maybe our greatest hits, ones that maybe you haven't listened to in a long time because you've been here with us from the beginning, or maybe you haven't actually been here for that long and you haven't had time to go back and re-listen to some of them. So we're going to reissue some of the episodes that were really, really, I'm going to call them old as in like they were recorded a long time ago, but they're not old in terms of relevancy. And so you'll hear from me as host. You'll also hear from probably Norman Horn as host. We might even have some other special guest hosts, depending on what the topic is. So to be sure, we will also be releasing new episodes. But we also wanted to return to some of the classics that we've had. So I'll let you get to the show. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. My name is Doug Stewart, and today with me is Nick Gosling. And we have a special guest uh, who's, this is his second appearance on the podcast, is Jason Jewell. Jason Jewell is professor and chairman of the Department of Humanities at Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama. He's also a faculty member at Tom Woods Liberty Classroom and a member of LCI's editorial board for our new academic research journal, The Christian Libertarian Review. Jason, thanks for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me back on, guys. A few years ago, there was a book published called Christian Faith and Social Justice. And it was one of those books that was, uh, there were five contributors plus an editor who uh, wrote an introduction on the problem of social justice. And you were one of those authors taking the view of the Christian libertarian. Nick and I were reflecting before, before we went on the air that it's pretty, pretty amazing that a Christian libertarian got to have, you know, one in five uh, voice on, on a book like this. Uh, and so we're, we're really proud to kind of have you on there. You even, you even cited Norman Horn, our founder, and one of, the, one of the things I really loved about the book was if there were any defense or introduction to libertarianism that would appeal to the left or somebody who's kind of a left-leaning reader, I think you probably crafted the, the single most concise explanation of libertarianism that might appeal to them. I know that that's like kind of dripping with praise there, but uh, I really, really loved your chapter. Um, and you don't have to take that humbly. You can be very proud of it. Um, but the, that, that's, you're, you're why, that's why we, you're on the show here talking about uh, social justice with us today. So one of, the, one of the central questions that was raised in the book by the, by the editor at the, in the beginning was, you know, it, it is about Christians and social justice. And the, one of the core questions is, how does Jesus' call to his disciples to love God, their neighbors, and their enemies inform Christian visions of social justice? Do you think that it's true that Christians should be concerned with social justice in the first place? Well, I think that all depends on how you're defining social justice. And that's one of the tricky parts of having this kind of conversation. I, I do appreciate very much your, your kind words about the book and about my contribution to it. And this phrase social justice, of course, it gets thrown around a lot in contemporary political discourse. And I think a lot of people who even the people who like to use it don't necessarily have a very clear idea what it is that they mean by the phrase. 
uh, the phrase has been around for a while. It, it even goes back to the, I mean, it goes back at least a hundred years. I mean, the um, Roman Catholic social thought, you know, has used this phrase social justice since at least the early 20th century, maybe the, the uh, late 19th century. And back then it was really just discussing the idea of the notion of what, what do different social classes owe to each other? You know, what kind of responsibilities do they have towards one another? Do um, employers, capitalists, do they have particular obligations, responsibilities to the working class beyond, you know, simply the, the on-time uh, payment of their wages and not defrauding the people that are working for them? Do uh, people in the working class have responsibilities towards uh, members of the uh, wealthier classes beyond simply not defrauding them? And those Roman Catholic social theorists would spend a lot of time talking about the, the, the way Christian virtue ought to express itself in the way social classes relate to each other. And there's a lot of good stuff in, in the writings of those um, you know, popes and, and other theorists from that era. But I think when people use the phrase social justice today, that's not really what they have in mind. As best I can tell, when most people will use it, there's simply this vague notion of, well, we need more redistribution of wealth. We need a, um, maybe a more generous welfare state, or we need higher taxes on wealthy people or, or, or something like that. So, so they kind of use it as shorthand for particular outcomes that they desire. Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. That's the way it gets used a, a lot today. And of course, if that's what social justice means, if it simply means more taxation and more uh, welfare state spending, then uh, I, I don't necessarily think a Christian ought to support that. But if we are talking about social justice the way it was frequently used, the phrase was used uh, maybe a hundred years ago, like what's the what's the Christian approach for people to behave uh, in relation to people who are not of their own uh, social class, people who are not their peers necessarily, then certainly I think that's a worthwhile topic of discussion. Uh, when I took the, the foundational essay, which, which actually appeared uh, first out of the five contributors in that book, uh, Christian Faith and Social Justice, you know, my approach to this phrase social justice was simply, um, you know, there's not really much of a difference in my mind between social justice specifically and justice more generally understood. And uh, I stressed the idea of the Christian position on, about nonviolence I talked about the non-aggression principle, which of course is often what uh, people who are trying to introduce others to libertarianism will discuss and talked about how those things are uh, consistent with one another. I talked about different um, you know, caricatures of libertarianism that are frequently thrown around by people who don't necessarily understand what libertarianism is all about. And I tried to uh, you know, explain that this is not really what we're talking about when we talk about non-aggression. Uh, we're not just, you know, being people who are special pleading for for the wealthy or any of that sort of thing. And uh, I also talked about how when you adopt a liber- libertarian position, it's the most likely of any political approach to result in uh, rising prosperity for uh, people in general throughout the society. So if your concern is the welfare of the, the least well-off, for example, then um, if you understand economic reality and... Um, you should be favoring a libertarian approach to policy in terms of regulation of business and that sort of thing. So I, I laid out, uh, first of all, in the chapter, what is libertarianism? I, I took 
a while to examine what is the institution of the state? Why do people treat the state differently from other institutions in society? What makes it unique? And then I made the kind of standard libertarian argument that uh, we shouldn't apply a different set of moral standards to the state than we do to um, you know, voluntary associations or individuals, that the state ought to be restrained from uh, aggressing against people as well. And uh, once I tried to make that connection, I think that the um, connection between Christian libertarianism or Christianity and libertarianism becomes pretty evident. Now, of course, not all the other uh, contributors to the book agreed with me, but that was the uh, general tack I tried to take. When I think about social justice, I think about it kind of wearing two different hats, as a Christian and as a libertarianism. And I just want to get your response to this, maybe. It seems to me that as a Christian, and, and just to tell a little personal story for, for your benefit, for benefit of our listeners, I grew up pretty conservative. And as I was, you know, in my early 20s, I started becoming a lot more um, you could say liberal or maybe more progressive in in my thinking theologically, but there was this sort of nagging, eh, you shouldn't go too far here. And once I started reading some economics, that was what kind of kept me from becoming a full-on left progressive or something like that. And libertarianism seemed to provide, I don't want to call it a middle ground because I don't like the way that that, as if that were just somehow, you know, superior naturally by saying it's a middle ground, but it, it became a limiting factor on my, what I thought was a theological vision for the world. So to kind of condense that, what would you, would you agree with my assessment that, you know, as a Christian, we should be concerned with social justice, but that libertarianism's assessment of the world and the economic realities would limit what we can actually do to accomplish our vision? It's a good question, Doug. And one of the things that I tried to explain in my foundational essay for this book was that, yeah, as long as you agree with the principle of non-aggression, then as a libertarian, even there's a, a spectrum of opinions you might have about, you know, what's the appropriate distribution of wealth in society, for example. So I, I might take the position that socially and, and from a Christian point of view, I think things would be things would work better. Society would be more more harmonious if property ownership were more widely distributed than it is at present. You know, we've all heard the disturbing statistics about how little people have uh, saved, for example, and how nobody has an emergency fund. They couldn't ha handle a five hundred dollar emergency if it happened. They'd have to go spend money on their credit card. Well, you know, I, I think a lot of us could probably agree that the society would be in a healthier position if more households had reserves of property that they could draw on in cases of hardship. But then the question, of course, is, you know, if, if that's the goal that you want to reach, how do you get there? And, and that's where the question of non-aggression comes in, because we could all you know, talk all day long about, you know, what would be the ideal state of society that we would like to see, you know, who controls the property, what the mores are, uh, what uh, what families look like, for example. And uh, as long as you're committed to voluntary and non-aggressive ways to get there, that can all happen kind of within the universe of libertarianism. And libertarians could disagree about the so-called uh, end state that they would like to see of what, what would perfect society look like. You might favor maybe a, a more traditional social, social hierarchy or a patriarchal culture or something like that. 
as opposed to a you know very egalitarian one. But as long as you are committed to non-aggression, both of those are compatible with a libertarian view of the world. Uh, the problem, of course, from the libertarian perspective comes when you try to use aggression to advance towards that goal that you have for society, whatever that may be. I, I wasn't attempting to adjudicate among those competing visions of what the good society looks like uh, beyond saying that, well, as Christians, you know, we don't want people, you know, murdering and stealing from each other and so on. But my uh, main point was, whatever the goal is, uh, we shouldn't use aggression to get there. And of course, the state is the main vehicle for that uh, institutionally in society. So my answer to your original question would be, yes, it's great for Christians to be concerned about social justice and to have an idea of where they think society ought to be moving. But then uh, trying to achieve that through political means primarily would be, um, uh, at, at the very least, a tactical mistake. And uh, at worst, maybe um, uh, a sin. So uh, that's how I would answer your question. Jason, you know, we've had a number of interactions with people, some on this show who would be considered probably progressive or progressive-leaning Christians, but certainly in other contexts. And it, in all my experiences with this, and, and Doug would probably agree it's, it's been the same with him, whenever we ask about how do you get, as a Christian progressive, how do you get around this idea that ultimately what you're proposing depends upon uh, state violence in order to enforce it. And I've never had a progressive give me a satisfactory answer to that question. H has that been your experience dialoguing with progressive Christians? Or, I mean, how, how do they get around that? Because I've never seen anyone be able to, to give a, a logical, consistent, satisfactory explanation for why that's okay. One of the ways that we frame that is that the the theological underpinnings of these people that we're talking to, some of them as guests on our shows, refer to uh, the Old Testament as a very counter-empire, how God is against empire and the accumulation of wealth by kings. And, you know, you can take that whole argument and then all of a sudden their social policies require big government. That's kind of the tack we, we take with them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good observation. And I have noticed the same thing as well. And you're asking, hey, how do they get around that? I think that for a great many of them, and, and certainly it's true of several that, that I've talked to, and even uh, one or two who were contributors to this book, that they sort of have this um, you know, different category for thinking about the state. They don't consider, I, I think it was the, the virtue ethicist that contributed to the book, when I pointed out that, you know, when you're, whatever you're, if you're funding a program by taxation, you know, that ultimately relies on the, on violence or the threat of violence. And it was like this, this virtue ethicist couldn't wrap her mind around that idea. I mean, she actually wrote in her response to me, the mind boggles that, uh, that Jewel could have said this. And it, it's almost as though there was, she has this visceral reaction to the notion that what the state does it, by nature is violent. And she's unwilling to uh, re-examine that assumption. And I think for a progressive, you know, they've, progressives in general, they seem to put so much faith in the state as this entity that is going to achieve all these wonderful things. And when you come back and invite them to take a critical look at this institution and what really it's all about, and you would think that 
there'd be enough awareness for them to know that certainly states have been the you know, biggest murderers of people in history and all that sort of thing. But they have this, I don't know whether it's like a platonic form that they want to be reaching for or something like that, where they just think that, you know, all that can be, you know, swept out of the institution and we can have these uh, angelic people kind of running things. And if we just give them the power, you know, they can make everything great. And so I think it's a fairly naive position to take about, you know, what, everything we know about how the state actually works, how the state has worked historically, and what happens when people who are affected by the sinful nature get control of these levers of power, that the temptations that it presents with them, that it presents them with, are uh, inevitably going to cause a lot of problems. But I, I, I don't think that I've ever heard, really heard a good answer about that either, except to say, I think some of them might try to argue, well, we've had all these injustices in the past, and so when we empower the state, the goal was to try to rectify uh, some of those injustices, and, and that's how they kind of reconcile it in their minds. But many of them are just very, very unwilling to confront the, the reality that the state is an institution that is fundamentally based on violence or the threat of it. You said that the virtue ethicist uh, mind was boggled by by your statements, and I'm looking at her response because this is one of those views, uh, those books that have five views, and then like everybody gets to respond briefly to your essay. And so here, here's what here's what's ironic to me. This is what she writes: True justice cannot come from violence. There cannot be true justice if we are willing to succumb to the cycles of violence and domination of which every violent act is a part. Now that you could have written that as a defense of libertarianism. Exactly. And then <laughs> it's just really funny. And then she says, I have a very critical view of the modern nation state and believe it cannot on its own provide what is needed for human flourishing. Government cannot in itself create and sustain the common good. Okay, so some, some, something was misfiring there, uh, <laughs> I, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's very intriguing to me the way people frame things. And, and I'll even bring up, like, uh, in the beginning of the book, someone brought up a quote from Stanley Hauerwas. And Nick and I both are kind of fans of Hauerwas in the sort of nonviolence aspect of his, of his Christian thinking, but he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be a libertarian. Um, and we, uh, Walter Brueggemann wouldn't be a libertarian. Pete Enns, I don't think is a libertarian yet. Some of the things that the, and Brian's on to bring up more people, none of them are libertarians, but somehow they make the case against violence and collective violence at that yet somehow missed this point on the state. So they're running, they're running uh, on a different wavelength, maybe? I don't even know. I, I, I think the book calls it conflicting norms, uh, to, to use what Michael Sandel was uh, posing the problem, that we just have views that are different in how we approach them. I don't know if you can you know, kind of comment on the, the approaches that we, that we often take that just end up being, we just speak past one another. Yeah, your, your quote from the virtue ethicist, like you say, I mean, the, those are really good statements there from her essay. I think if you go back and you look at my response to her opening essay, yeah, I was very favorable to a lot of what she said. And of course, I I teach the great books, as you know, and so I'm yeah, I'm always teaching these virtue uh, philosophers and theorists and so on. And so I really liked a lot of her essay, but it was kind of mystifying to me how she had this big blind spot about the violent nature of the state. And these other thinkers that you mentioned here, uh, Hauerwas and Brueggemann, I mean, they're all great thinkers in, in a number of ways. And uh, Hauerwas in particular, I think he's even quoted 
by the editor of uh, Christian Faith and Social Justice as being one of the guys who says, uh, we need to kind of shy away from this phrase because it, it tempts Christians to abandon a lot of the norms of Christian thought, you know, when they get into this political discussion and they just start talking about redistribution and all those sorts of things. So, I mean, a lot of these guys, from our perspective, have you know, very good instincts, yet there's still this um, double standard that they hang on to when it comes to this idea of uh, action by the state as having some other criteria for whether it's legitimate or not. But, you know, this is political science 101. If you, you look up what the definition of a state is, and it's an institution that exercises the territorial monopoly of violence in, in a given area. So, I mean, if that's the definition of the state, I, I don't see how a lot of these thinkers can, I mean, there's, there's some kind of cognitive dissonance, definitely. And, and I don't know exactly. I did my best in, in my uh, contribution to this book to try to break through that and to overcome it. But apparently, you know, for a lot of people, it's not enough. So I'm not sure what the solution to that is. Yeah. You know, I, I want to read that Hauerwas quote. I, when I highlight things, I highlight stuff. And then sometimes I highlight and then write, you know, make a little uh, star in the margin or something like that. Um, I, I think it's worth quoting. Um, so the editor is saying that Christians parrot secular appeals to social justice, and he's pulling from Harawas to kind of make the case. They too often forsake the virtues, values, and norms intrinsic to the Christian story of God's work in Christ. The Christian imagination has been co-opted by liberal presuppositions that obscure the distinctive claims that properly inform life in the Christian community. Now, here's where he quotes Harawas, but this is really great. The current emphasis on justice among Christians springs not so much from an effort to locate the Christian contribution to wider society as it does from Christians' attempt to find a way to be societal actors without that action being colored by Christian presupposition. Uh, one of the things that I find a little troubling about the left, especially the sort of Jim Wallace, Sojourners, left activists, the Christian left, I should say, is that Every time they advocate for certain things or that politicians should care for the poor or that politicians should do this or we as a society should act like act more like Jesus, I kind of think, well, aren't you the same people that say we shouldn't be a Christian nation and that we shouldn't impose our religious values? And so it seems like the excuse is, oh, well, Christians need to be involved in social justice. Uh, there's this mission, there's this movement toward social justice in, in the political sphere, and therefore we need to just kind of hitch our wagon to that movement and we'll just give it a Christian veneer, and that'll get us out of trying to make America a Christian nation. Yeah, it, it really is frustrating to see that kind of uh, contradiction at work. And of course, in all fairness, those guys are going to identify plenty of contradictions among the Christian conservatives when it comes to war and things like that. Of course, you know, as li Christian libertarians, we're trying to avoid the contradictions of both of those groups. But uh, yeah, the whole God's politics thing by my sojourners. I mean, that there's, it really is um, interesting on one level to see how Wallace and and people like that have, you know, can be, can so confidently say these things. Uh, although Wallace himself has has backpedaled on a lot of his positions over the years. If you read him from back in the seventies, he was almost just a flat out socialist, uh, and now. Uh, you know, in later editions of his books, he's had to back away from that, uh, having finally, I think, to some degree figured out, you know, that markets do work and they, uh, you know, 
keep more people out of poverty than central planning does and all of that. But, but all along the way, of course, he's saying, well, this is what God wants. This is what God wants. And so I, I think that they're, they're sort of captivated again by this idea that, well, we have this vision of society that works well and in which oppression is done away with and which people have their material needs met. And they just see the, the state as the, the quickest and most efficient way to get there. And so they are willing for that end to justify these means. But then, like you said, they run into this contradiction about we want this, this end because we're Christians and we're willing to use the state to you know, bulldoze our way towards that end. Yet at the same time, we are going to tell other people that we shouldn't impose our values. But when you're using the state, what else are you doing? It's exactly as you said. So yeah, there definitely are contradictions there. Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Christ is King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly eBooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. Sounds like you would agree that if we have some goals in society, like we want to see human flourishing. If, if we have a vision as, as Christians to pursue uh, some sort of social end, if it were, as it were, it would obviously exclude violence. But one of the things that you noted in, in the book, and this was in your response to the virtue ethicist, was that uh, libertarianism, because it is neither a comprehensive theory of justice, nor is it a comprehensive theory of ethics, in order to complete one's theories of justice and ethics, the libertarian must integrate a separate set of ideas that provides a teleology. I really like what you say there because I see libertarian Christianity or Christian libertarianism as sort of complementary things. I think that Christians, if they're consistent in their ethic of nonviolence, they would, they would very likely become libertarians. But I, I understand people don't have that. But they're not just complementary and they're compatible. And that's because of the non-aggression principle. Okay, you want to achieve something in society, go for it. You just can't use violence. Therefore, you should not use the state to accomplish your means. What would you say to somebody who says, okay, well, all right, I don't want to use the state but there's so many problems in our, in our world. There's poverty to deal with. There's inequality, even, even legitimate concerns about inequality. I don't think all inequality is bad. I don't want to go with that particular type of inequality. But there, I mean, there's, there's bad parts of the world. There's injustices in our country. There are, there's violence. There's, there's shootings in schools, shootings in churches. Um, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to accomplish. It just seems like the state is so big, it could probably, you know, tackle those things. So, you, let's say you've convinced somebody to uh, say, okay, well, I can't use the state. Well, what do I do? Like, where do, we, where do we go in an ethic of justice if we can't use the state? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that comes up pretty frequently to, to the people who ask it. I would say, first of all, let's, let's recognize that despite many, in, in some cases, many decades of effort, the state has not solved, the, solved these problems either. You know, we've thrown uh, billions and trillions of dollars at um, social problems like poverty and drug use and those sorts of things, and they're still around. So that by itself should give us some amount of evidence that the state may not be the best way to try to address these problems. Beyond that, there are a couple of things that, that you could uh, talk about. One is that, well, the church needs to be an example uh, to the rest of the world. The church needs to be that you know, city on a hill, be, be that, uh, that shining light. And so in the church, there should, I, I think, there should be concerted effort to try to clean up our own house uh, to, to some degree. You know, the, the people who are professing Christians and the, the leaders of churches need to make a lot of effort to try to address these problems within the church. And I'm sure that most people would agree that if they've seen a success story of rehabilitation, or whether from drugs or a healing a broken marriage or something like that, that it is you know family, friends, and churches that can affect a lot more of those kinds of stories, bring them about than uh, government programs can do. So I, th I think the the church needs to work on those kinds of situations and clean up its own act, so to speak, and be an example to the rest of the world about this is the kind of healing that the gospel can bring to your life. And it's not just about saving your soul so that you go to heaven when you die, but your, your life in this world becomes better because you're acting in accordance um, the, with what the scriptures teach and what God's will is and so on. So that's one answer is that, uh, that the church can be an example to others. But then also churches, of course, can, and people in churches can work with those outside the church to try to address problems on um, a more secular level, if you, if you like, on a voluntary basis. So, you know, I applaud Christians who are, um, you know, volunteering in uh, homeless shelters that are not religiously affiliated and other kinds of uh, charitable outreach and all those kinds of programs that uh, are organized by nonprofit organizations, voluntary associations. These are all uh, good things that can directly affect people in the place where you live. And I think a lot of people find more fulfillment and they recognize that there, there's a, a greater human connection that comes about when you go and you volunteer and you are helping someone face-to-face, -face, there's something more meaningful there than to say, well, I voted for candidate X who promised to spend this much money on this program to address homelessness. There's something more social about that experience too. That's exactly right. So I, I think that there, there's a temptation for those of us who live in democratic societies to try to kind of outsource our virtuous acts by delegating them to, as we think, to politicians. And then we can avoid the actual, the harder work of, you know, rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty and helping people face to face. But I think those are the things, those are the kinds of things that are going to be more effective in addressing the social problems, you know, in, in the place where you live. We all, we all have to recognize that we are finite creatures and 
no one of us or small group of us is going to solve social problem A, B, or C, but we can uh, show God's light to those people who are within our reach, within our orbit. And of course, ultimately, this can become an evangelistic tool as well, because we are not only concerned with the material well-being of these people, but we're concerned about their souls. And so, historically, this was a, you know, a major function of the church was to uh, create those institutions and run and maintain those institutions like uh, hospitals that attend to the material needs of people, but are also ministering to them spiritually, which is something, as we all know, that the state can't do. So I think the way forward is, is for us to focus more on what we can do through the church and uh, if, if, you, if you're faced with a choice about where to put your energy through some kind of uh, voluntary action that is going to improve your community directly through the church or, or some other organization like that versus uh, political activism, it seems to me that from both the Christian perspective and the libertarian perspective, that the um, voluntary approach is the superior one. Jason, you know, when we're reflecting on these examples, of the church historically engaging in all these uh, social programs and things it, it, in a ministerial context. You know, the economic aspect of it is that the, the bottom line is it takes capital, right, to do these things. It takes money someone has to produce in order for the church to be able to go out and help people. And, you know, since, we're our, since you're an expert in classics and, you know, we've talked about the great books here on this show with you before— I always think back to uh, Aristotle and the Nicomachean ethics and the description of virtues. And, you know, he talks about uh, being magnanimous. But the implication there is that in order to be magnanimous, you have to have something to give. And that requires uh, production. It requires the market. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that or, or how we can communicate that message to our, our friends on the left? Yeah, and this is an area where you talk to Christians about this and sometimes you get pushback because, of course, we do have within the church that long and you know, hallowed tradition of asceticism and the vol voluntary embrace of poverty and so on. Um, but as you say, you know, if, if you want to bring about material relief, to those who are suffering, you've got to use material resources to do that. So there's a division of labor within the church uh, for that. And, you know, maybe the, the monks and the nuns can, can uh, devote themselves to those spiritual disciplines full time, whereas the rest of us um, are trying to make a living and using our material wherewithal to help others uh, where we can. But you're, you're right about Aristotle and his idea that in order to you know, fully exercise all of the virtues that he discusses in that work, you have to have some amount of property. You need property to be able to give yourself enough leisure time so that you can form the habits of virtue. You can work on, if you're, if you're working sun up to sundown and you don't have opportunity to develop those habits, you know, some, some amount of property um, allows you to do that. And as you say, the virtue of magnanimity cannot be exercised by somebody who is in poverty. You know, we're, we're getting into the area of, you know, the, the scriptural precept that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? If, when, when Christians approach the material world with the idea that 
Ultimately, this all belongs to God. To whatever portion of the material creation God has delegated to me, I am a steward of those resources, and I should be managing them on God's behalf and, and, and doing God's work with them. So each one of us has to make decisions about that little slice of uh, the material world that we've been entrusted with. And uh, in, you know, hopefully with prayer and contemplation and consultation with those of members of our family and so on uh, that we're exercising joint custody with over these resources, we'll come to prudent uh, decisions that do advance the work of the kingdom. But I, th I think it's certainly a problem in the church today that both institutionally and maybe to some extent among individual Christian households as well, that to some extent we've lost that awareness of the need for this kind of uh, social action in the sense of not political activism, but in um, helping those who are less fortunate than ourselves. Because again, we, we sort of have this idea that we've kind of outsourced that to these other institutions, primarily to, uh, to the state. And I think one of the major tasks confronting the church today is to kind of reclaim that vision of uh, ministering to the world uh, through the church. If you look at the average church's budget today, I think I read this um, a few years ago, some statistics, something like 90% or 95% of the average church's budget is taken up with overhead, uh, you know, maintaining the building, uh, paying the staff, you know, very little dedicated to benevolence, outreach, missions, those sorts of things. And so that, that's an area where I think the church could probably do better by reclaiming some of those. And I think that if, if the church calls upon its members to get that vision that, you know, you'll have more giving uh, on the part of, the, of uh, you know, individuals in the church, if the church steps up and says, this is going to be our mission in this community and we're going to go help these people who need it, that uh, the, church will, the, the members of the church will respond. Jason, one of the things that you talk about in the common objections to libertarianism portion of your chapter is this issue of big business. And that's another thing that we often hear from the left is they go, okay, well, you know, you can criticize the state. Uh, but really you're just transferring uh, this, this imperial control to these private actors, this big business. And so big business is really on the side of libertarianism and libertarianism is on the side of big business. I, I, I don't remember where he said it, but I remember hearing Tom Woods say something to the effect of if big business is all in favor of libertarians, they, they sure don't show it with the way they uh, spend their political dollars, which I, I found a humorous observation. Not very many corporate donations to Ron Paul in 2008 or 2012, that's for sure. But so there, there, there's this narrative, right, that uh, it, it's like, oh, well, libertarians aren't really for, for freedom. We're just exporting control to, to big business. Now, you, you do address this a little bit in your chapter, but, but for our listeners, can you, can you kind of counter that point? First of all, I think libertarians, if you actually read libertarian authors as opposed to, you know, straw man caricatures that um, people on the left frequently throw at libertarians, you'll see that uh, libertarians are frequently critics of big business and of crony capitalism. So a lot of the things that the left doesn't like about corporations, about big business, is 
are, are the same things that, that libertarians don't like about it in that these corporations will frequently use state leverage in order to uh, hamper their competitors or to um, you know, rig certain markets uh, to increase their own profits. And the, the left's way of addressing that is to say, well, we just need to smash corporations or, or tax them more or something like that. Whereas the libertarian uh, approach is to say, well, let's remove what's enabling the corporations to do this. Let's, let's take away this state power that is letting the corporations get away with these things. So uh, the idea that libertarians think everything that big business does is great is silly. As, as you said, that um, the corporations certainly don't seem to um, be too favorable towards libertarians in many instances because libertarians, they want a, a level playing field. They want to remove uh, the, the favoritism that the state shows to large firms over small firms. And so uh, the big corporations aren't interested in uh, moving towards that kind of environment. So we, we've got, uh, that is certainly one way of answering the question. Uh, another way is to, if you go back to the non-aggression principle and you can say, well, you know, there are plenty of libertarians who don't like Mark Zuckerberg and, and the kinds of things that uh, the social vision he wants to advance. Um, there are libertarians that are critical of Google and other kinds of, um, you know, businesses that are trying to squelch um, free and open discussion and speech and, and that sort of thing. I mean, there's nothing about being a libertarian that means you automatically are in favor of either, uh, you know, big business in general or, or, or particular companies. I mean, there's, there's plenty to criticize, um, you know, businesses for uh, in, a in a lot of ways. But now we're not going to criticize them on libertarian grounds as long as they are acting in non-aggressive ways in, in the you know, advancing of their, uh, you know, trying to do business. But here, then this is another thing where, where Doug pointed out earlier, this, this point that, you know, libertarianism is not a comprehensive way of looking at the world. It simply says there are certain rules that we need to follow as we try to advance our different goals. And, you know, different businesses have different goals. So there are going to be libertarians who um, agree with the goals of some businesses and disagree with the goals of others. And they're going to um, speak and act accordingly. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing inconsistent with that. The only thing that a libertarian does is to say, we oppose it when businesses are trying to use the state uh, to advance their own interests. Yeah, I think what you mentioned there that businesses do not, if they were really about being libertarian, they wouldn't work so hard to keep the playing field tilted in their favor. And uh, that's, that's probably the biggest piece of evidence in my mind. The big business doesn't really, capitalists don't really want true capitalism and free markets. <laughs> they, want, they want more capital. Uh, because uh, power uh, corrupts and it, that still plays out in the, in the market. It's not only applying to government. So, Jason, thank you for, for being with us for this show. I think it was an important topic for Christians and libertarians to discuss and to deal with. I would recommend uh, the book that you contribute to, Christian Faith and Social Justice. Fair warning, if you're a libertarian, you're going to be really frustrated by a few uh, responses to Jason's uh, essay and you're going to be baffled by some things people think. But that's fair. Uh, I'm sure they're a little baffled by the way we think. And that's just, it's just a great conversation overall. And I understand the nature of, of debates like this. So um, yeah, thanks again for being with us. Thanks guys. It was my pleasure.
Well, that wraps up another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com. You click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished.